This is Our American Stories. An Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, spoke to the United Nations General Assembly in New York not long ago. And it was such a compelling speech, we thought we'd bring it to you. And for a reason, what Netanyahu's talking about here, the disease that impacts the Middle East, Israel, and the United States, and that's militant Islam, was at the core of this address and so was the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And nobody's a better storyteller about such matters because Bibi Netanyahu has lived this. Let's take a listen. When the United Nations supported the establishment of a Jewish state in 1947, it recognized our historical and our moral rights in our homeland and to our homeland. Yet today, nearly 70 years later, the Palestinians still refuse to recognize those rights. Not our right to a homeland, not our right to a state, not our right to anything. And this remains the true core of the conflict, the persistent Palestinian refusal to recognize the Jewish state in any boundary. You see, this conflict is not about the settlements. It never was. The conflict raged for decades before there was a single settlement, when Judea, Samaria, and Gaza were all in Arab hands. And when we uprooted all 21 settlements in Gaza and withdrew from every last inch of Gaza, we didn't get peace from Gaza. We got thousands of rockets fired at us from Gaza. This conflict rages because for the Palestinians, the real settlements thereafter are Haifa, Jaffa, and Tel Aviv. Israel itself, he's saying. And by the way, we love the way Netanyahu tells the story of the problems that surround Israel. Netanyahu continues, he does not dismiss the importance of settlements, but he shines a light on another much less discussed obstacle to peace. Now, mind you, the issue of settlements is a real one. And it can and must be resolved in final negotiation, final status negotiations. But this conflict has never been about the settlements or about establishing a Palestinian state. It's always been about the existence of a Jewish state, a Jewish state in any boundary. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel is ready, I am ready to negotiate all final status issues. But one thing I will never negotiate, our right to the one and only Jewish state. Wow, sustained applause for the Prime Minister of Israel and the General Assembly. The change may be coming sooner than I thought. Had the Palestinians said yes to a Jewish state in 1947, there would have been no war, no refugee, or no refugees, rather, and no conflict. And when the Palestinians finally say yes to a Jewish state, we will be able to end this conflict once and for all. Now, here's the tragedy. Because... You see, the Palestinians are not only trapped in the past. 
their leaders are poisoning the future. I want you to imagine a day in the life of a 13-year-old Palestinian boy. I'll call him Ali. Ali wakes up before school. He goes to practice with a soccer team named after Dalal Mugrabi, a Palestinian terrorist responsible for the murder of a busload of 37 Israelis. At school, Ali attends an event sponsored by the Palestinian Ministry of Education honoring Baha Alian, who last year murdered three Israeli civilians. On his walk home, Ali looks up at a towering statue erected just a few weeks ago by the Palestinian Authority to honor Abu Sukar, who detonated a bomb in the center of Jerusalem, killing 13 Isra 15 Israelis. When Ali gets home, he turns on the TV and sees an interview with a senior Palestinian official, Jibril Rajoub, who says that if he had a nuclear bomb, he detonated over Israel that very day. Ali then turns on the radio and he hears President Abbas's advisor, Sultan Abu el urging Palestinians, here's a quote, to slit the throats of Israelis wherever you find them. Ali checks his Facebook and he sees a recent post by President Abbas's Fatah party calling the massacre of 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics a, quote, heroic act. On YouTube, Ali watches a clip of President Abbas himself saying, we welcome every drop of blood spilled in Jerusalem. Direct quote. Over dinner, Ali asks his mother, what would happen if he killed a Jew and went to an Israeli prison? Here's what she tells him. She tells him he'd be paid thousands of dollars each month by the Palestinian Authority. In fact, she tells him, the more Jews he would kill, the more money he'd get. Oh, and uh, when he gets out of prison, Ali would be guaranteed a job with the Palestinian Authority. All this is real. It happens every day, all the time. Sadly, Ali represents hundreds of thousands of Palestinian children who are indoctrinated with hate every moment, every hour. This is child abuse. And child abuse it is. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this Netanyahu speech at the UN. And we'll also hear the story of Micah Avni's father, who was killed by terror terrorists in Israel. He wrote an amazing column, and he recorded it for us. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with Prime Minister Netanyahu's General Assembly speech given earlier this year at the United Nations General Assembly. And Americans need to hear this story of Israel and the countries that surround it, and particularly the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which as a Lebanese guy and an Arab, I've never understood this word conflict because the Jews would love to settle things But the Palestinians have at the core of their covenant and Hamas the destruction of Israel. Pretty hard to negotiate with somebody who wants to destroy you. So we were just listening to part of that speech. Let's continue with Netanyahu contrasting how Israelis raise their children with how Palestinians indoctrinate theirs. We in Israel don't do this. We educate our children for peace. In fact, we recently launched a pilot program, my government did, to make the study of Arabic mandatory for Jewish children so that we can better understand each other, so that we can live together side by side in peace. Of course, like all societies, Israel has fringe elements. But it's our response to those fringe elements. It's our response to those fringe elements that makes all the difference. Take the tragic case of Ahmed Dawabshe. I'll never forget visiting Ahmed in the hospital just hours after he was attacked. A little boy, really a baby, he was badly burned. Ahmed was the victim of a horrible terrorist act perpetrated by Jews. He lay bandaged and unconscious as Israeli doctors worked round the clock to save him. No words could bring comfort to this boy or to his family. Still, as I, as I stood by his bedside, I told his uncle, this is not our people. This is not our way. I then ordered extraordinary measures to bring Ahmed's assailants to justice. And today, the Jewish citizens of Israel, accused of attacking the Dawabsha family, are in jail, awaiting trial. Now, for some, this story shows that both sides have their extremists, and both sides are equally responsible for this seemingly endless conflict. But what Ahmed's story actually proves is the very opposite. It illustrates the profound difference between our two societies. Because while Israeli leaders condemn terrorists, all terrorists, Arabs and Jews alike, Palestinian leaders celebrate terrorists. While Israel jails the handful of Jewish terrorists among us, the Palestinians pay thousands of terrorists among them. So I call on President Abbas. You have a choice to make. You can continue to stoke hatred as you did today, or or you can finally confront hatred and work with me to establish peace between our two peoples. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I hear the buzz. I know that many of you have given up on peace. But I want you to know, I have not given up on peace. I remain committed to a vision of peace based on two states for two peoples. I believe, as never before, that changes taking place in the Arab world today offer a unique opportunity to advance that peace. And that again was Benjamin Netanyahu, and nobody tells that story better. And as promised earlier, we'd now like to share with you a story from Micah Avni. He's the CEO of Peninsula Group Limited, ranked among the 100 most influential people in Israel by The Marker Magazine in 2015 and 2016. And he's raising four children with his wife in Tel Aviv. But this story isn't about Micah the leader or even Micah the father. Let's take a listen to Micah, the son of a great man. And we got this story from the Wall Street Journal. Micah had written a column called The Anti-Israel Poisoning Starts Young. We called up Micah. We were going to interview him, but we thought it would just be better if he read and performed that column. And he did. And we bring it to you now. My father, Richard Lakin, a 76-year-old retired elementary school principal from Connecticut, was on a bus in Jerusalem last October when two young Palestinian men boarded and began shooting and stabbing passengers indiscriminately. Two passengers were killed that awful day and 16 injured, including my father. Despite the efforts of first responders and the nurses and doctors at Hadassah and Karim Hospital, my father died two weeks later. He had been shot in the head and stabbed multiple times in the head, face, chest, and stomach. It was horrific. Over the past year, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what would cause two educated Palestinian men in their 20s to board a public bus and butcher a group of innocent civilians, many of them senior citizens. I'm sorry to report that the Palestinian reaction to the attack has led me to believe that the peace process is more one-sided than ever. My father grew up a fighter for civil rights in America. He took those values with him in 1984 when he emigrated to Jerusalem, where he taught English to Arabs and Jews. He was a kind, gentle-hearted man who dedicated his life to education and promoting peaceful coexistence. Yet Palestinian newspapers praised Ba'alian, one of the terrorists who murdered my father, as a martyr and intellectual. Palestinian Authority President Mohammed Abbas has met with the families of the attackers and praised them as martyrs. A Palestinian scout leader said Ba'alian who was shot and killed by a security guard before he could kill more innocent passengers, was an example for every Palestinian scout. Mohammed Alian, the father of Baalian, has been invited to speak at Palestinian schools and universities about his son, the martyr. He recently spoke to children at Jabal Mukabar Elementary School in East Jerusalem, about a half a mile from where my father lived. Tragically, many Palestinian children, perhaps most, are still taught to honor terrorists and fight for the destruction of Israel. All this would break my father's heart, In 2007, he published a book called Teaching as an Act of Love, summarizing his life's work and educational philosophy. The message of his book is that every child is a miracle that should be nurtured with love. After Baalian's father visited Jabal Muhabar Elementary School, I asked school officials if I could come and share my father's message of peace and coexistence. My offer was rejected. As long as Palestinian leaders nurture a culture of hate, encouraging school children to go out and kill, more violence is inevitable. By encouraging hatred, 
They distance all of us from the love and belief in peaceful coexistence for which my father stood. My father's book begins with a quote from William Penn. I expect to pass through life but once. If, therefore, there be any kindness I can show or any good thing I can do to any fellow being, let me do it now and not defer or neglect it, as I shall not pass this way again. My father lived by those words, if only his murderers had as well. Thank you. And thank you, Micah, for writing that. And what a remarkable thing. So the terrorist's father in in Palestinian territory is invited to go into schools to talk about that hero son who murdered innocents. And when Micah asks to talk in that same school about his father, a peacemaker, he is denied. And this is what the world is up against. And we won't be afraid to call things by their name here on Our American Stories. And as someone who came from Lebanon and who understands the difference between peaceful Muslims, the majority, and radical Islam, which is a a poison. And it's a poison that, well, I don't know how else to get rid of it, but through battle and through education. And you can tell Jews have been trying to do this well, since practically their formation. And it just, it's not going well. And America's learned about this. Well, we've learned about this since 9-11, particularly. We learned about it first when the World Trade Center got hit in 1993, but we just sort of passed it off. And now it's happening with increasing frequency in our great country. And this is what binds us together. Well, so much binds the great countries of the United States and Israel together that that's why we include Israel in our American stories and what's going on there. These are two countries bound together by a value system, by Judeo-Christian heritage, by free enterprise, and so much more. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Micah Avni's reading of his column from the Wall Street Journal, The Anti-Israel Poisoning Starts Young, and we team that up with Benjamin Netanyahu's great speech at the United Nations. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and leave your message there, and we'll make sure to get back with you within 24 hours. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And this week, Deb brings us a conversation she had with a couple named Jerry and Donna, a couple who had been through a lot before they met each other. Jerry and Donna, how long have you been married now? They're counting. (laughs) 
I got over six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks. So you'll have to listen. Hey, I get it. You know, you're like, how many days has it been now? I mean, some people count years, but yours is six weeks. But your journey has been a lot longer than six weeks. And uh, we're going to get into what your story is. But before we do, I kind of want to take both of you back um, to tell me your story from what life was like when you were a child. My life when I was a child, I was raised in a foster home and had a very rough life. I was abused in a foster home most of my life. What age were you when you first went into foster care? I was two. Two years old? Yeah, and I bounced throughout five foster homes. My dad was an alcoholic. Okay. He was never around. Okay. My mom couldn't take care of 16 kids. So most of us went in a foster home. She did what she had to do. Um, I love her for what she did. It's my father that was yeah. always gone and drinking and was yeah. never around. So we had to go to foster care. Well, Donna, how about you? Tell us about your childhood. Um, I'm the youngest of four kids. Uh, my father was very verbally and physically abusive. Um, um, I was sexually assaulted by my sister and my brother. When my mom passed, <clears throat> my dad became an alcoholic. He became even more so abusive. Um, I ended up running away from home. At age 16, he beat me so bad that the principal of the high school actually let me leave school and shook my hand and wished me good luck. And just let you go? Let me go. And you had nowhere to go at that point? I had nowhere to go. Which I went to court and my dad lost his parental rights. And I was put into a children's home. Um, I ended up in a foster home, which they basically used me as a babysitter. And as I got older, the foster dad became sexually aggressive to me. Oh, no. So I left there and ended up going back home to my dad. And that didn't last very long. So how many years later did you guys meet after that point then? Now you have to really count. <laughs> Actually, we just met three years ago. Um, in the meantime, what were you thinking about life? Were you like, oh, I'm just going to live my own life, that's it? Or what was your theory on life at that point? I was going to live my own life and do what I wanted to do. Okay. So independence was valuable yeah. to you. Yeah. What about you, Donna? Same thing. Really? Survival. Okay. Just take life one day at a time and basically survive. Yeah. yeah. I was actually at that point, I was to the point where I was saying I wasn't going to look for anybody. Yeah. I was tired of looking. I was tired of being disappointed. Right. Um, the men that I met out there, as far as I was concerned, were either alcoholics, drug addicts, or abusive. I didn't have that trust. Right. Um, and I, when I met him, I was to the point where I was, I was leaving it to the fate of God. If it's to be, it will be. Yeah. And Jerry and I both have learned and have increased our faith so much since we've been together. And the one thing that we've come to the conclusion is if it's meant to be and it's in God's eyes, it will be. Not the way you want it to be necessarily. Right. 
Right. It's not the way you want it to be. Obviously, there's a reason for it. You don't know what it is, but eventually it'll make sense. And right. I've, and I've gone to church every Sunday since I met her. Really? Yes. Jerry and Donna dated for three years and were thinking about getting married, but their past trials had brought wounds into their relationship that made them uncertain. So they took part in great marriages for Sheboygan County's Prepare and Enrich program in which they were mentored by another older couple who has successfully navigated their marital challenges. Deb picks up the story there. I I want to just hear from you guys what that was like. Well, let's see. We went in on the first day and found out our mentors, Tom and Sue. First day, we walked in there. They thought the same thing I thought, which was when we walked in there, we should have never, ever been together at all. We It, it should have just never been. And after we went through the whole thing and we got everything all said and done and, and, and took the whole course that we were supposed to take, to this day, they are amazed when it came to our wedding, even on how things turned out, and they're everybody's so happy for us. Oh yeah! Did it help to have a guy and a girl coaching you guys? Yeah, it did. Yes, because neither one of us grew up with parents as good role models. Oh, and that's a big key. If you don't have that mom and dad marriage to show you what a marriage should be like, then you have no clue. Yeah. And if you don't know, you can't react, respond, or work it out. I mean, you yeah. can't do anything because you don't know what to do. Great Marriages was the cake. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really helped us to understand each other better. Mm-hmm. Did it give you a chance to heal from some of the abusive situations you went through? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know with mine, um, the way my father would talk and certain words that he would use, and even just the tone of his voice, Jerry has a lot of similarities. Wow. You know, I felt like he was just, Mm -hmm. he was my dad, Mm -hmm. and I didn't want my dad around. Right. You know, and I had to understand, you know, this is who he is. He's not a mean man. He's not abusive. He's not after me. Yeah. Like my father was. Yeah. So just because he says something one way doesn't mean it's the same way as my father said it. That's you know, it's kind of like texting somebody. You can text something and they totally misunderstand what you're saying. Yes. So true. Yes. You know. Yes. And you really have to clarify yourselves. Yeah. I mean, you really do. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Deb and... My goodness, I'd, sometimes I just, you, you hear stories, and particularly that Foster story, and you just, you wonder how people cope and manage. Um, but the healing power of relationships, and of course, and we cover this time and again on the show, God plays a big role in so many Americans' lives. Many not, but many it does, and we, we don't shy away from it when it does play a part in folks' lives. And when we come back again, we're going to talk with Deb Wolniak about Jerry and Donna, about their struggles, about mentorship, and all the great things that she does working with married couples. Marriage, a big subject here on Our American Stories. It's the institution that matters most in the country. It doesn't have a bad name. 
particularly, but it doesn't have a good name particularly. I think people are sort of blah about it, blasé about it. And we want to dig in and let people know that a good marriage, well, there's nothing more important. Sets the foundation for a family, for kids, and for love. This is Our American Stories, Marriage on the Mind. When we get back, Deb will join us. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our Marriage on the Mind segment. As always, we're joined by Deb Wolniak in the second session. We hear from the couples in the first, only first names. And this is private stuff. It's confessional stuff. Sometimes you feel like you're eavesdropping and you shouldn't be. Every once in a while I get that feeling, I shouldn't be listening to this. It's not right. But I'm glad I am because I'm married. Anyone who's even not married should be listening to this. We all have relationships. And thanks for joining us, Deb, as always. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, it's something interesting comes up in this first question. I've always wondered about this, Deb. Maybe you can answer this first by digging into the general idea, and then we'll get into the specific case. But in Jerry and Donna's very first great marriages session with their mentor couple, that mentor couple was actually having a fight between themselves. <laughs> and so what I always found interesting being a mentor couple is, look, you're not perfect. What happens when the couple you're mentoring is in better shape than you are? <laughs> and it's got to happen sooner or later because marriage is never just a straight road. Uh, yeah. What do you do in that case? Do you like recuse yourself? Do you go yeah. in there and let them know what's going, what's going on in your marriage, the mentor couple, and then the mentees are mentoring you? What happens? Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, so here's the scoop. We always, always tried to uh, match up when I was at Great Marriages. The couples would be older, 20, 25 years married or older. In this case, this couple is um, close to 50 years married. So they definitely know marriage. They've endured a lot. And this couple was far younger in their uh, even relationship walk because they were within that first two to three years of their relationship together. So um, I love the mentors there because, and a lot of people that are involved in the Prepare and Rich program around the country, they're they're honest. You know what I mean? They're honest about, you know, who they are as humans and, you know, they make mistakes or they have struggles too. And guess what? Here's the irony about marriage. The struggles that you have in your marriage makes you stronger and better as you weather through them in a healthy way. And one of the biggest struggles that Americans have nowadays is they don't necessarily know how to be married well, how to communicate well, how to look at differences and respect even some differences that you're going to have to agree to disagree on. But to even come to a point that if you're standing there in front of your children and they're watching what's going to go down and they're just hoping that mom and dad could work it out, whether you're married or not, they want to see a relationship that is working together as a team. And this is one of the reasons why I love Jerry and Donna in this piece is because they're really honest, not only about their past, 
but I love this mentor couple that was able to come around them and just be honest in front of them and say, listen, we got to work this out. And they came back the following week after agreeing to finish the conversation outside of that room and at home. They came back and said, listen, this is how we resolved this situation. And Jerry and Donna were really impressed. They said, listen, that was probably one of the first times we've seen somebody come full circle on an issue of an argument together and be united and that you don't have to be afraid of it, that you can work it out and it can make you stronger as a couple. And so they got to see firsthand a real fight and how the couple negotiated and ultimately settled that fight. Yeah. And that's refreshing, isn't it? It's like we don't have to worry about the floor dropping out from under us, that we can say, okay, let's take the emotion out of it. That's one of the things you have to do is pause a second and really know, okay, let's look at this step back and look at what are the details of the situation. Listen to the other person as they're talking, as they understand it verbalize it back to them. I hear you saying and repeat it. And if there's any misunderstanding, get that out of the way so that you clearly know what you're talking about and can come to full conclusion together and decide things together. And you can see it. When you see couples that are working together like a team, it's amazing. And and to have like a healthy conversation and no one's like raising the roof. Wow. For some families, that's really foreign. Normally, you know, for some it's about the yelling, like, I got to be heard. But there's something else that's going on underneath there that people have to slow down and maybe get some extra coaching to really learn and understand about themselves because every couple is unique. Yeah, and in your longer conversations with Jerry and Donna, they talked about the things they did to clear the channels of communication between them. What are a couple of those tools, Deb, that our audience can learn from? Yeah, yeah. So one of them I mentioned is, you know, kind of um, – being able to unplug the the excess energy out of that conversation, yeah, yeah. to be able to sit down face-to-face and in some cases hold hands and look at each other eye-to-eye. If you get a physical posture that basically says, I'm listening to you, I'm hearing you, I'm ready to receive what you're saying, it may not be easy, but I want to talk this out, and be able to get to that point, that's really good. For some couples, that is such a big first step to get to that point is going to be difficult. But let me tell you what, if you can try it and say, you know, if the next time we have a conversation, I want to sit down in this kitchen, in these two chairs, I want to face-to-face, hold your hand, I really want to hear you. Well, Deb, you know how hard it is to scream at somebody if you're sitting across the way from them and you're holding their hand? I mean, it sort of makes it really tough. Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, let's just pause because I can hear some people screaming in the background, but you don't know my spouse. Yep. Yep. I get it. I get it. Some people are not at that point yet. Again, the coaching does help out. But for those of you that want to try this out, I really want to encourage you to take that moment. But if, if you need that extra space to process, I want you to talk to your spouse and agree on that in advance. Listen, when I feel really heated, I need about five minutes to process in a different room, and I'm not trying to ignore you. Can we agree on that? Yes. Okay. And so what is your signal? Say, give me a moment, and the other person acknowledges that. Go in the other room. Take that five minutes. If you have to breathe it, do some breathing exercises or go walk around the house and get some fresh air, come back in, sit down in your spot to communicate and really be able to learn how to love that person through just communication. Now, even if it's something simple, 
like, well, you know, you don't close the cabinets in the kitchen, or I wish the dishes were washed, or who's taking John to soccer, or whatever. Let's make sure that you give yourself the space to do that. So many Americans are running so fast on a schedule, they don't even have time to even call their spouse on the phone, let alone be in front of them. But I'm going to tell you, this is why our lives need to change today to make sure that we can build a solid relationship for the long term. And these pebbles of investments that you make into your marriage will pay off dividends. Trust me, if you do it once and then, you know, continue to try, you will be surprised at how your marriage will start to strengthen and trust gets built and love goes deeper. And don't we all want that? You know, alcohol was something that played a big role in Jerry and Donna's childhood. And they told you how they both swore off drinking, but not because they're alcoholics. Why did they stop drinking? So the, the, the piece on that is um, Jerry and Donna saw how destructive that um, issue with the alcohol was in their parents. Um, in, their, in this case, the fathers, um, and, and really caused some additional damage and some poor judgment of not only how they were abused or neglected, uh, but how it really broke a family apart. And addiction is a huge challenge for many people. And I'm telling you, it doesn't even have to be an alcohol addiction. Anything you're doing to self-medicate, and that could even be playing tons of hours of video games. It could be watching tons of TV shows in order to just self-medicate and not have to deal with the other person. And believe me, there's a lot of people doing that. Yep in our culture, just to save face so they can at least just try to live under the same roof. It's got to stop. We got to get to a better spot. And believe me, the person that you married, you married them for a reason. And I'm telling you, they are a treasure. And I, if you take the time to look and you continue to work on that together, you will find something new. And addiction is a serious issue in our country, and we do need to get help, and we need to be honest and call it out. We got about a minute left. We got about a minute left, Deb. Donna's daughter from a previous marriage loves Jerry so much that she asked Jerry to do something that every father dreams of doing. Tell us about that and what listeners should take away from this most unlikely of stories you've brought us. Well, you know, even with that, she her, she had experienced a brokenness in her, the first relationship with her father, uh, her her birth father. And she came to Jerry and she said, would, would you also be my dad? And he was so thrilled about that. To have, have that moment as a man, to, to know that you've gone through a huge life change over many years and just struggling to, you know, know what is a father like? That is one of the biggest compliments that someone would come to you and say, you know, would you be my dad and help me with that role in my life is, is one of the best things ever. That family is close. They love each other deeply, and I wish you all could meet them face-to-face because they are truly an inspiration. Well, thanks as always for what you do, Deb, and we look forward to the next installment. And we're talking, as always, with Deb Walniak, our marriage coach for our Marriage on the Mind segment, Jerry and Donna this week. And I love their voices, love their story, and it was a tough story and a tough one to listen to in parts. As always, Deb, thanks for your work. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and check out all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. You can download things. You can stream. 
You can go to this day in history segment in the topics area. I think we've got about 150 of them there, maybe more. Again, this is Our American Stories. stories and we love to talk about music on this show old music new music country r&b you name it we cover it rock we've done ray charles stevie wonder their life stories merle haggard miles davis frank sinatra and miranda lambert is well she's a new kind of country artist it's a real merger of rock and roll here and blues She's best known as a solo artist and is a member of the Pistolanis. Miranda has won two Grammys, 21 Academy of Country Music Awards, five American Country Awards, and on and on. Lambert's debut is this song from the title track of the album, Kerosene. Certified platinum in the United States and produced the singles, Me and Charlie Talking, Bring Me Down, New Strings. All four singles, top 40 hits. And that's why we're talking about her life and her music. Kerosene is about a breakup where the narrator has enough with her boyfriend and starts burning his stuff with kerosene. And like a lot of female artists, generally these things start with boyfriend breakups. And like the male artists who always start with chasing the girl and not getting the girl. But ultimately as artists come along, they move past that. We'll be doing the life of Bruce Springsteen soon and as his records went on, he started saying, well, I chased the girl, I got the girl, now I'm living with the girl. Now, what's married life like? Then he got divorced and he wrote about that. Then he got remarried and had a child and he wrote about that. And so we love to deal with artists who actually evolve from where they started and move along and move their audience along with them. Because of her young age and early success, Miranda didn't have the opportunity to experience a lot of concerts from the perspective of a fan, in this clip, Miranda talks about the last time she had the chance to actually enjoy a show before she herself became famous. I went to uh, Fanfare, when it was Fanfare, to the last show at the fairgrounds, when it was the last year at the fairgrounds. And I never got any of the autographs, like, you know, the wait in the autograph signs. I never did that because I wanted to see the shows. Um, and I remember one of the years I was there, um, we got there real early so I could get up close to this, the front of the stage. Sound like the third row, and Leanne Womack 
was there that year, and she had come in, and she had had a bus wreck, and she was all frazzled, and she still got up there and sang after her bus had wrecked on the way, and it was just like a big deal, and I just thought, oh my gosh, how could you ever sing after your bus wrecks, and then, you know, then you get on the road, and you realize things like that happen, and you have to go on, and so that was kind of like, that stands out in my mind, because I just thought it was such a big deal then that she mustered up the strength to get up there. Born in 1983 in Longview, Texas, Miranda was named after her great-grandmother, Lucy Miranda. Her father, Rick Lambert, was a police officer who played in a country rock group called Contraband in the 1970s. Great band name. While still in high school, Lambert made her professional singing debut with the Texas Pride Band. She also fronted the house band at the Rio Palm Isle in Longview, Texas, a long-running venue that had presented legends such as Elvis Presley and Willie Nelson, and the place where Brooks and Dunn started out as the house band. Not bad pedigree. Next, Lambert describes what her transition from a regular fan watching a show to rock star status was like. And then I got to be on the other side of it, which is crazy to go from sitting on the 12th row as a fan and then being on that stage, you know. Um, I remember one year Charlie Robinson was singing on the big stage at the stadium me and my mom had taken a Texas flag, and so we went in the photo line, and all we did, we didn't take photos, we just held up our Texas flag, like, we're from Texas, too. <laughs> we were just so proud of that. Um, but now being on the other side is so crazy, because I look out and I can see the spots where I sat as a fan, and I'm up there on that stage, and it's crazy. It's, it's like, you know, it takes me back when I'm up there singing to dreaming about it, and I have to make sure I say a little prayer of thanks every time I'm up there. A little prayer of thanks every time she's up there. And we love telling stories like this, folks. And Miranda's in her early 40s now. Uh, and no, she's not Frank Sinatra. And no, she's not Miles Davis. But who knows where her career is going to go. I think it's when artists, and particularly songwriters, hit their 40s that they really start getting interesting. At 16, Lambert appeared on the Johnny High Country Music Review in Arlington, Texas. The same talent show that helped launch the career of Leanne Rimes. Lambert then acquired a recording session in Nashville, and that's the gold standard for country artists, getting to Music City and Music Row. But left the studio after she became frustrated with the pop type of music presented to her. We hear this story over and over again. Chris Stapleton, my goodness. It took him years and years for finally him to get a record deal where he could just be himself. She went back to Texas in 2000 and asked her dad to teach her how to play guitar so she could write her own songs. In 2002, she was hired to perform at the Ty Phelps Country Music Restaurant and Venue, Love and War, in Texas, where Miranda and her father met entertainment attorney Rod Phelps, who had been instrumental in getting Garth Brooks to Nashville, another pretty decent singer-songwriter. And Garth did it his way, too. Totally his way. Phelps was impressed with the Lamberts and sent letters and demos to producer and record executive Mark Wright and Garth's manager, Bob Doyle. Their positive responses got Miranda to return to Nashville. And on September 15, 2003, she signed with Epic Records, her debut single. Well, let's take a listen. Me and Charlie Boy used to go walking Sitting in the woods behind my house Being lovers, man, I stole that kiss Holding hands with nobody else around Charlie said he wanted to get married But we were only ten so we'd have to wait 
And when we come back, more on the life of Miranda Lambert. And you can hear it right from the beginning, a storyteller. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. This day in history, Miranda Lambert was born in 1983. And you're listening to her first hit song. And it's off her second album, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and the song Gunpowder and Lead. It became her first top ten country hit in July of 2008. And with over one million digital downloads, Gunpowder and Lead was certified platinum on December 3rd, December 3rd, 2010. And that's the mark of every hit record, is to get that certification. In this clip, Lambert talks about how music was the only thing that ever came easy to her, and how writing gets harder as she gets older. I don't know where I'd be or what I'd be doing if I wasn't doing this, because it's the only thing I can do. You know, um, I've been playing music for a living for 12 years, and... I'm thanks for not stopping now. <laughs> when I was 17, I knew that this was what I wanted to do, what I needed to do, and it's the only thing in my life that's ever come naturally to me. Everything else I have to work really hard for. You know, sports and academics and all of that stuff just wasn't easy. And music is the only thing that comes easy, like it's what I was meant to do. Writing's more of a challenge now than it was when I was younger, just because I'm busy with life and I have a store and a bed and breakfast, and so I, I have to like, push some of that out of my mind and go, okay, it's time to just be creative. Her third album, Revolution, was released in September of 2009. Five singles were released from that album, including two number one hits. The career is really moving. The House That Built Me, which spent four weeks at the top, and Heart Like Mine. The House That Built Me is a country ballad in the key of F major, driven primarily by an acoustic guitar with steel guitar fills. The song's female narrator describes returning as an adult to the house that she grew up in and asking the person who now lives in the house if she could step inside and take a look. Let's take a listen. I know they say you can't go home again I just had to come back one last time Ma'am, I know you don't know me from Adam these handprints on the front steps are mine Up those stairs in that little back bedroom Is 
where I did my homework and I learned to play guitar. And I bet you didn't know under that live oak, my favorite dog is buried in the yard. Nothing but a memory from the house that built me. This is Miranda's first single of her career that she did not have a hand in writing. It was written by Alan Shambling. But what a song. Let's keep playing it. Plans were drawn and concrete poured, nail by nail and board by board. Daddy gave life to Mama's dream And a long way from kerosene. And she just started to grow up. And reminds you a lot of if you've ever heard Bruce Springsteen's My Father's House. And it's a a recurrent theme in many great writers. Going back to that place you were born to try and get back in touch with yourself. A part of yourself you lost. Miranda became very famous after this record. Ultimately married Blake Shelton. Who everybody knows. But then came the divorce. And a very public one. She took out a piece of paper and wrote down her emotions, and on July 18, 2016, Lambert released a single called Vice to country radio and digital outlets. Written by Lambert, Shane McAnally, and Josh Osborne, it's the first song released since Lambert's 2014 album Platinum. Here, Miranda talked about the writing process just before that release. The writing process has been long. Um, I've had a lot more time to write for this record than I have in the past because I was not heavily touring last summer and 
throughout the fall. I toured a little, and um, but I moved to Nashville about the time I started writing for this project, and so I was writing about five days a week uh, for about eight months, and that's new for me because I haven't lived where the hub of it is, you know. So um, it was really great. I really I wrote so many songs, and I feel like I really grew as a songwriter. It's been such a process of kind of hunkering down and sort of keeping to myself and writing and recording and so now that the public is going to hear something finally it makes me happy I'm nervous but I'm excited because I really only had feedback from a small circle of people around me and I haven't you know gotten to hear if what I've been working on so hard is actually working so um, it's always this moment of anticipation when you have a new song coming out and um, it's been a while for me so I'm excited, but nervous. And nervous she is, you can hear it. And this song, Vice, which I described before, debuted at number two on the country song charts. And let's take a listen. Stay as a needle dropping on a vinyl Neon singer with a jukebox title full of heartbreak 33, when it hurts this good, you gotta play it twice. Another vice. This is Our American Stories, Miranda Lambert Barner on this day in history in 1983, a unique voice, and she just keeps getting better. Looking forward to many more years listening to her work, anticipating her writing. Let's go back to Miranda to close out the segment. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything 
music, love, sports, history, and, well, anything that stirs the soul. And occasionally, we'll do public policy stories, but only when it hits the pavement. That is, only when it affects you, the listener. In America's great experiment that we call federalism, our states serve as laboratories of democracy, passing laws and regulations of their own, and we, the people, get to see firsthand how well they work or how well they don't. And how many times have we in America chosen to move because we don't like the way things are going? Sometimes we're left with no choice but to respond by shutting down our business, moving to another state, to a state that's more welcoming. It's no easy decision for any family or any company to leave home and to start a new life. And today, our field correspondent, John Woods, brings us just such a story about one company and what they were facing for the inaugural episode of our Moving in America series. months back, I visited a company, a company that opened its first factory way before I was born, way before my dad was born, or my grandfather, or even my great-grandfather, or my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was born. That's 15 generations in case you were counting. Anyway, you get the point. They've been in this business for a while, like 490 years. That's right, since 1526. They still operate in the same small town in Italy where they first set up shop all those years ago. And the company is still operated by the same family. Talk about laying down roots. Dr. Ugo Gasali Breda and his two sons, Franco and Pietro, are the ones presently pulling the Breda company trigger. Here's Dr. Ugo. The family together... Uh is much stronger than one person. Strength that's brought them to the 15th generation of running the family business. Well, in 1977, Breda made a commitment to another small town. This time to Akakik, Maryland, when they opened their first and only U.S. factory. But in the last few years, Maryland had become less committed to them. And so Breda had to make a decision. Their general counsel, Jeff Ray, told me, we always run into problems in Maryland politically. Every year we're fighting battles in the legislature. Some years we do okay, some mm-hmm. years we don't. And then the Newtown tragedy occurred. Right here in Newtown, Connecticut, the site today of a mass shooting and this time gunfire aimed at elementary school children. And Governor Martin O'Malley's reaction to that was to introduce a whole slew of gun control legislation and uh, proposals in, in Maryland. Here's then Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley talking about the law he signed. We passed comprehensive le- uh, gun safety legislation, not by looking at the pollings or looking at, the, at, at, uh, at what the polls said. We actually did it. We were able to pass this and still respect the hunting traditions of people who live in our rural areas. But interrupting people's hunting season was the least of Jeff's concerns. So many amendments were added to it that would have stopped us from doing business in Maryland. Uh, For example, we could not import magazines into the state 
that were high capacity, even to use in manufacturing military pistols for the U.S. Armed Forces. The Beretta factory in Maryland made the U.S. military's official pistol, the M9. It also has a 15-round magazine, a so-called high-capacity magazine, and it, too, was about to be illegal. And it turns out the military was just going to be collateral damage. We couldn't even have high-cap magazines in our factory. The Maryland ban would have prevented anyone from having a high-capacity magazine or assault rifle. Whether they were a civilian or off-duty military, or even manufacturers like Beretta. The off-used reason for the ban is, well, who needs more than 10 bullets? And don't so-called high-capacity magazines lead to more gun deaths? Politicians say such things because they feel that more bullets, or more guns, or more accessories on those guns must be more dangerous. But things are almost always more complicated than they seem. Between 1993 and 2013, the number of guns in this country increased some 53%. There's now more than one gun for every man, woman, and child in America. And in those same 20 years, the gun homicide rate dropped an astounding 49%. Proponents of gun control laws like Maryland's might say they were responding to mass shootings. They argue that such laws are needed to stop twisted murderers from harming us. If only that were so. Remember Eric Harris, who with Dylan Klebold infamously murdered a dozen of their classmates at Columbine High School? Eric didn't have a single high-capacity magazine. Each magazine he carried held only 10 rounds. He just carried 13 of them. The Virginia Tech shooter also carried 10-round magazines, 17 of them. The Maryland law wouldn't have, couldn't have, stopped either of them. But this reality didn't stop Maryland's politicians from grandstanding. And Beretta realized the pressure to do something, anything, put them at an ever-increasing risk. So the, the, the downshot of all that was that we got through that legislative process barely. And the, our discussion then, my discussion with the Berettas turned from where are we going to move our expansion of, fat, of production to, we need to start thinking about whether it's safe to stay in Maryland. Because if another tragedy occurs, or even not, the next governor, or you know, O'Malley was leaving office at that point, but the next governor or governor after that, Something happens and they say, you know what, we don't think you should be manufacturing any guns in this state. Or you can't make semi-automatic pistols, or you can't make semi-automatic shotguns, or who knows what. And so we decided, let's move the entire factory during a time of our choosing, rather than being forced to do it with the disruption and costs that happen if you do it in a hurry. With new laws on the books, Maryland didn't get any safer in a hurry. May 2015, two years after Governor O'Malley signed the law into effect, Baltimore, Maryland recorded its deadliest month in its 289-year history. This is my first time in my 29 years, like, ever being kind of nervous being outside. I never felt unsafe in my neighborhood, and it's always been a crazy neighborhood, but I never felt unsafe. At this point, you may still be asking yourself, 
Why would a regular guy or gal in Maryland want an assault rifle or a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds? Here's Jeff being questioned at a public forum by a member of the Maryland legislature. But it's only very infrequently that somebody commits a crime with an assault weapon. Why do you need one in self, for self-defense? Well, for the very same reason that, that police buy them for, for protection of the community. Um, if I'm a owner of a bodega and I'm trying and I have multiple assailants coming into my shop, even just presenting a rifle like that could be a significant deterrent. And he might need that deterrent because when seconds count, the police are often minutes away with response times that range from under five minutes to longer than a whole day and about 10 minutes on average. So either the bodega owner is going to be able to protect his life and his livelihood, or he's not. And when we come back, we're going to learn where Beretta chose to move to. Because clearly, a divorce is about to happen with the state of Maryland. And this company that chose this state is now being forced to flee this state. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and more of our Moving in America first, first story after these messages. America story by our field correspondent, John Woods, who brings us his conversation with Jeff Ray, the general counsel and board member of the Italian firearms company, Beretta. We just heard Jeff talking about how Beretta had decided to leave its American home of Maryland because Maryland criminalized assault rifles and magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, and in doing so, criminalized a big part of Beretta's business. Next, Jeff tells us how they chose their next American home. Here's John Woods. America's respect for our right to defend ourselves, our right to control our own future, free from intrusion, is what brought Beretta to America 40 years ago, and what brought others here as far back as 400 years ago. What the Berettas were looking for were states not only where there was a current respect for Second Amendment rights, but that would be likely to maintain that respect and tradition for hopefully centuries to come, but generations to come for sure. And and I'd like to emphasize, it's not just that it's a gun issue. The Berettas see the American Second Amendment and the adherence to the Second Amendment and respect for the Second Amendment as an element of respect for individual freedom. And that is not something that you see in every country. In some countries, people look naturally and maybe even instinctively to the government to do things for them. As for countries that don't share America's values, take France, for example. When Islamic terrorists struck the Charlie Hebdo magazine, the police actually ran from them. 
They ran away alongside the very people they were supposed to protect. Because they didn't have guns, and the Islamic terrorists did. And they always will, no matter what laws you pass. Terrorists and criminals just don't follow laws. In France, citizens not only can't carry a weapon for self-defense, they don't even have a right to own one at all. The French expected their police to protect them so that they didn't have to protect themselves. But they expected too much, and it cost lives. But the tradition and the culture of the United States is a belief that you should be able to do something for yourself first. And the Berettas really respect that. It's not so much that it's an entrepreneurial thing, but it's a, it's a concept of self-sufficiency and self-determination that they find admirable. And so from a business point of view, they find that to be admirable as well. People aren't passively waiting for others to do for them. They are proactively going out to do things for themselves. And if you're a business person, that's the type of person you want to hire or have manage your company. When Breda had first moved to Maryland in 1977, Akakik was a backwater stop along the Potomac River. But in the past decade, the town has grown 40%, and median household income has grown to $123,000. That's two and a half times the American average. And it's in part thanks to Beretta. But the rest of the state of Maryland surrounding Akakik changed too, just in the other direction. And the Berettas had to move to keep their business in operation, to keep their 400 people employed. So how did this 500-year-old, multi-million dollar international business make a decision that would affect generations to come? Easy. Start by giving a test with just one question. There were 22 states we identified as good Second Amendment states. Um, We ended up arbitrarily choosing seven that would pass the test. After we did that, went down selected to seven. And the seven were, in no, no, no particular order, Texas, Tennessee, and Kentucky, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia. And in the end, we were all, we we looked at, and I personally went to 80 different locations in seven states in a three-month period. And we went in person because when we first met with the city council or the whoever they were sent, the city was sending to, to meet us or the county. I wanted to tell them we were from Beretta, the gun company, in front of them, and I wanted to judge their reaction. I wanted to see if they just said, oh, if they kind of recoiled, or if they were enthusiastic, or how they took that news. And like good neighbors would, a few governors came to visit. And Governor Rick Perry flew up to Maryland to meet with Mr. Beretta, who happened to be in in, uh, the, in our factory at that time. He comes in, sees him, we're sitting there at the conference table talking, and he's giving a very effective pitch about 